Thank you for joining us today for the preaching ministry of Dr. Chris Aiken, Senior Pastor of Inglewood Baptist Church in Rocky Mount, North Carolina. Inglewood is a dynamic ministry reaching Eastern North Carolina and the world with the timeless truth of the gospel. For more information, visit us online at inglewoodbaptist.com. Now here's Pastor Chris with today's message. Let me invite you, if you brought a copy of the scriptures, open with me to the book of Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5, if you'll find your way to verse 11, we're going to kick off there and uh, finish up chapter 5 today in our time together. As you're turning there, let me uh, encourage you guys, if you've not already signed up for the East Coast Men's Conference coming up uh, in just a couple of weeks, can I encourage you, can I beg you, can I challenge you, can I cajole you. I'm looking for other good words. Can I, can I just say, man, you need to be signed up for this. It's a big, big deal. Um, I think, I'm trying not to use preacher numbers, but I think we're closing in on a thousand people already signed up for the conference and we still got several weeks to go. So we're way ahead and uh, it's a good thing. And if you've not already signed up, go ahead and get your spot and uh, go ahead and get that secured. A lot going on at this conference. Uh, Dr. Fred Luter, um, one of uh, my favorite pastors from the New Orleans area, or Nolens area. Dr. Fred Luter is going to be here with us on Friday night. Um, also, we got Zeb Cook from over at Apex is going to be with us. Uh, a man, uh, a retired Army chaplain, Ike Eichelberger, is going to be with us. He is a great, godly man, retired from the Army, combat veteran, chaplain, and now works with Samaritan Purse, working and ministering with veterans. Great preacher. You don't want to miss out on that. And then uh, a guy you may have heard of, Dr. Michael Clore, is going to be with us, and he'll be preaching, and then yours truly. So it's going to be a great opportunity to be together. Hey, uh, for those of you who look forward to it, in fact, you sign up just so you can get the Chick-fil-A sandwich on Saturday morning. I'm sorry, we've canceled Chick-fil-A. Nothing against Chick-fil-A, it's still the Lord's chicken and we're still for it, all right? But we moved it to a Friday night dinner, so Parker's is going to be catering the dinner for us on, on a Friday night. So you'll find when you register, there's different seatings in that for you, as for you to be able to sign up for with your group. Go ahead and get your spot. Don't miss out on this. I'm praying God uses this to, uh, to help ignite a movement of new leaders uh, uh, and a movement of disciple-making across the body of Christ. And uh, with that many people coming, I know that represents well over 100 churches from across the Carolinas and Virginia and Georgia and Florida and then other places. So it's going to be a great time. Go ahead and get your ticket. I, I can't tell you enough that that's that important. All right. Now we're in Hebrews chapter five. We're going to kick off in just a moment. Verse 11. Let me um, say to you, most of you know, I've told you before that uh, out of high school, I joined the army and what I did in the army, I was a I worked for the, the military police corps, so uh, I joined up to be a military policeman, and, and in the MP corps, there's really two different lanes of work that MPs did. One of those what did in what they called garrison work, which meant law enforcement work. When, uh, when we weren't out on field maneuvers or whatever, we would ride around, we would, we would sit behind stop signs and write tickets, okay? We would run radar, we would look for for people that stole stuff that didn't belong to them and get it back and return it. You know, we'd get cats down from trees and stuff. All that stuff that you do as a police officer, we did that. And, I, and most of the early part of my career was spent in that area of operation. 
The second part of it was in combat support operations. So uh, whenever the army would go someplace uh, or, or they, they were out in the field, there would be MPs there that helped get supplies to the front and helped get prisoners to the back and make sure everything was safe and taken care of. And that was our combat operations side of things. I didn't do very much of that early on, but in I think it was 1990, I was promoted to the rank of sergeant, which it's a non-commissioned officer, which meant that the army automatically assumed, since I was a sergeant, and an MP that I was proficient at both garrison and combat operations duties. But I won't. All right, now, that doesn't mean I didn't go to the schools. I went to the schools. I knew all the technical stuff. I could pull a whiteboard up and draw circles and say, here's how we're going to do this and accomplish that. And, and I had tree clothes that I could wear. Some of you think I'm as hunting clothes. That's fine. But I had those and I could put those on. I could do all of those things. I'd been to, I'd been to the schools. I, I knew the whiteboard side of it. But there were guys who were of comparable rank, had been in the army comparable amounts of time, who were far more proficient at the combat operations side than I was. And the reason was, I'd never really done that. There's a difference between knowing about something and knowing something that you can only learn through practice. In fact, that never changed in my career until they assigned me to combat support operations and I started working in tree clothes on the regular and started going around and doing that kind of thing. Now, I tell you all that to say that's what's going on here in Hebrews 5. The writer of Hebrews says, hey, I've been telling you guys some stuff that you kind of know but it's really not connecting because you've not practiced what's been preached. You've not done, you've not lived out the things that are essential for this to connect for you. And if you're going to connect the dots, you've got to get some practice in. That's the big picture. And we're going to look at that over the next couple of weeks that we're together. But especially this week as we jump back into Hebrews. Now last week we ended with the introduction of a figure by the name of Melchizedek. And uh, remember he was a priest to the Most High God. Yet he was not from the line of Aaron because he preceded Aaron. He came before him. And he's such a key figure that the Bible says Jesus was a priest in the order of Melchizedek. In other words, in the same way Melchizedek was a priest, Jesus fulfilled this role of high priest, not being of the line of Aaron, yet being called of God and assigned by God to be the high priest. But then there's a pause. He's making an argument. He's knee deep into this, 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 uh, this case for Melchizedek and he's going to pick it up, but he just kind of stops midstream to talk to us about this. It's as though... He looks out at his audience or he imagines his audience that's re reached out and grabbed their phones and started scrolling email. Or that they had, uh, they had gotten distracted with social media or they had been on their calendar thinking about what they've got to do that week. Or that they had gotten off into some other place and that they had, they had become dull of hearing, he says. Like their eyes had glazed over and he saw them disengaging and, and then he addresses it, as we'll see, by pointing out that the reason it's tough for them to connect the dots has nothing to do with him and his teaching or on the Lord and his revelation, but rather on them because they've grown dull and he challenges them to grab another gear in their faith. Not grab another gear so they can be superstars or rock stars, but because 
Leveling up in your faith is an expectation for every single disciple. So he calls them to level up their faith. That's what we're going to look at in Hebrews 5. We're going to begin in verse 11. And can I invite you, if you're able, stand with me in honor of the Word of God. And hey, if you're joining us from home or somewhere, man, we're grateful for that. I'm reading from the New American Standard Translation. I hope you'll follow along with us. Hebrews 5, beginning in verse 11. The Bible says, Concerning him, speaking of Melchizedek, concerning him we have much to say. And it is hard to explain since... You have become dull of hearing. For, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you've come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he's an infant. But solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Would you pray with me? Father, even in these moments, would you speak to our heart and instruct us, reveal to us, teach us, sharpen our hearing that we might not only know, but that we might respond to you in a way that's pleasing. We're dependent on you for that. But find us willing for that and then have your will and way in Jesus name amen and amen you be seated thank you for standing there is an outline available for you on the app and uh, you could grab that I want to show you really three movements that take place in the text here that fit into the cause and effect relationship three cause and effects if you will in this message this challenge from the writer of Hebrews for us to level up our faith notice with me first of all He gives us the dangers of dullness, the dangers of dullness. He says, dull is dangerous. Look at verse 11 again. Concerning him, concerning Melchizedek, concerning the guy with the strange name that I talked to you about that Jesus is in the order of high priest after him. Concerning him, we have much to say and it's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. Now, This discussion about Melchizedek and the connection to Jesus is important. And now it's interrupted, but it's interrupted in what we would call an excursus. In other words, he's in the middle of a thought and he gives an, oh, by the way, let me talk about this kind of subject. He's he's in the middle of the throes of this thing. He's really about to lay it down. And then he just kind of shifts gears, takes a hard left. But he does so for a critical reason. See, the writer has something important even essential, but he notices it's hard for them to understand. Now, let's just be honest. There are some concepts about God that are difficult to understand. There's some concepts, some realities about who God is that are hard for us. They are complex to understand. If I said to you, describe to me the Trinity and explain that, you'd go, ah, Man, that's a lot. Three and one and one and three and all of them 100% and none of them ahead of each other yet subordinating between. I don't know, Chris. That's a lot. I know it's complex. If I said to you, explain the inner workings or the recipe or the formula for revival to take place among people. Tell me what's going on in Asbury and why. You might go, "I, I, I don't know how to explain that because it's complex. But now listen. Simply because something is tough 
or complex doesn't mean that it's unknowable. Things may be difficult to explain for a number of different reasons. I want to give you four. Things can be difficult to explain because of, number one, the limitation of the teacher. It is possible that the teacher is unfamiliar with the subject matter or unable to gather the right words or unable to connect a thought in your mind and heart. Sometimes the teacher just can't teach. But that's not the issue here because the writer places the responsibility not on the teacher but the hearer. But we can be honest and say sometimes the problem is the teacher just can't get the point across. Sometimes it's a a deficiency or a lack or a limitation on the teacher. It could be Secondly, a new concept, something that you've never heard before, considered before. And because of that, you have to take some time to just sit with it and learn some things about it. If you're taking notes, maybe jot down this scripture. Since you, <coughs> Acts chapter 19, verses 1 to 5, it might be something you've never experienced before. Acts 19, Paul is involved here. It says, it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus and he found some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, no. We've not even heard whether there's a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, well, into John's baptism. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him. That is in Jesus. And when they heard this, well, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, these folks had done all they knew to do, but he starts talking to them about Holy Spirit and, 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 and Jesus, the one that comes after, and they're like, mm, clueless. Who's that? Who that? And, uh, and they, as they explained it, they said, man, now we know. It was a new concept. The problem of their understanding was that they never heard of it before. And sometimes the limitations of the teacher or a new concept can dull our ability to understand. It could be, number three, a hard-hearted resistance. In other words, there could be some truth that we just don't want to hear as we ought to hear it. Matthew 13 is a good example of this. Jesus is teaching and uh, his disciples pull him aside afterwards and they said, Lord, why do you always teach in parables? He said, oh, because of the hardness of their heart. He said, uh, he said hearing they don't hear, seeing they don't see. They, they don't want to hear what I've got to say. So I teach to them in parables, but I teach to you plainly. And they said, uh, so the problem is there's truth there, but they just don't want to know it. Now, you may have met some people like that before. There's a truth, there's a reality. God says it plainly, but the implications of that seem overwhelming to someone. So they're just like, ah, I don't believe that. The Pharisees were some of those folks. The Sadducees were some of those folks. They were just sad about it. They missed Jesus because they said, well, we, either there's not a resurrection or this can't be him. And both of them missed because they were entrenched in this idea. They were hard-hearted and resisted. In fact, Matthew 13, he says, Jesus says it's because they become dull. That's a different word, by the way, than the one the writer of Hebrews used, uses. That word means impervious. It means that uh, they were so solid that nothing could penetrate the truth couldn't get through because they had locked in and made up their mind I'm not going to do they were unreceptive closed-minded about future things 
It could be the limitation of the teacher. It could be a new concept. It could be hard-hearted resistance. Or, as here, it could be an undisciplined disciple. An undisciplined disciple. He says, you can't hear this because you have become dull of hearing. Two words in the Greek, nothroi greganate, which means you have become lazy. Not impervious, but lazy in your hearing. The Bible says there's a treasure in there. And the, and the reality is they definitely need it, but they can't receive it because their hearing's gotten lazy. They've, they've stopped disciplining themselves to, to grasp and to hear and to process and to put it in its places. They've just, they've just grown lazy with it. I was teaching in a church that I led one time. It, 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 technically, the subject was systematic theology. I didn't tell them that because the term seemed kind of overwhelming to some folks. So I just called it what we believe and why. And I taught this subject on Sunday nights. And there was a fellow in the church who had been around a bit. And I, I asked him one day, I said, why don't you come to the class that I teach on Sunday nights? He said, ah, oh. it's, the, it's the, the gist of what he said. Preacher, I believe in Jesus. That's good enough for me. I don't need to study anything else. That's lazy, undisciplined discipleship. That's saying, I know God says he wants to reveal more stuff, but you say you don't need more stuff. You're good right where you are. Now, if you're good right where you are, God wouldn't say you needed more. If you're fine right here, this wouldn't have been revealed. But it was revealed because you could, now that guy in his defense, he said, you're the preacher, you'll tell me if something's important. Can I tell you that just don't, that don't, my friend Mississippi would say, that dog don't hunt. Because I tell people stuff all the time that they don't pay a lot of attention to. They just kind of blow off. But don't we do that in other things? Hey, listen, let's just see if that really works. There you are, your parent, your child's fallen ill. You take them to the doctor and the doctor says, well, this is very rare, but there's an experimental treatment. It's had good success. We'd like to subject your child to it. Do you sit there and go, well, you're the doctor. Sure, stick them with it, man, whatever you got to do. Or do you pull out your cell phone and jump on WebMD and Google and every other source under the sun and start reading about it, trying to figure out what under heaven are they about to do to my youngin? You're going to try to, you're going to, try to get your own medical degree before you let them put something in your kid's body. You know why? Because you're not lazy. But to just say, well, I'm just, I'm good. It's lazy. You wouldn't do that in any other thing in life. But yet... That's what happened here. He wants to take them to the next level on understanding the high priesthood of Jesus. But he said, you've already shut me down and started checking scores on ESPN, worried about March Madness. By the way, if your phone's out and you're on ESPN, I'm talking to you. I thought in the first service I would hear the tones go off, do, 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 do. I thought I'd hear that, but I didn't. So don't do it here either. I will call you out. Biggest Texas. I will, I will. There's a danger in dullness. Apparently, he wants to say something that's critical. And yet, they can't hear it because they've yawned through it. They're the danger of dullness. Notice, secondly, the immorality of infancy. 
the immorality of infancy. I told Jody this week, this was kind of a new, a new thing for me as I picked up on this and did some, word, some more words. I've been through this before, but I did some word study on this. I thought, wait a minute, there's something in there I hadn't seen before in this way. Look at verses 12 and 13. He says, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you've come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness. For he's an infant. Now the writer here connects their lack of spiritual readiness with a natural analogy. He says babies necessarily need milk for nutrition. They, they need milk. They can't process food, uh, solid foods yet. They can't, uh, they can't get their nourishment from there. Their teeth are still missing. By the way, you go out the same way you come in. Anyway, another story. But they, they don't have their teeth anymore. Uh, they don't have their teeth yet. So they can't just, you can't throw an infant a T-bone and say, there it is, knock yourself out. You can't do it. But at the same time, through the natural process, teeth grow, our ability to process foods becomes different, and we grow to a place to where milk no longer satisfies. You got to have something substantive in order to keep yourself going. And here's what he said. You've gotten so accustomed to milk, you have no need for solid food. You're still growing. Now, you may say, well, there's nothing wrong with that. If your 30-year-old son still living in your basement drinking milk, there's something wrong with that. That's not design. Just like if someone hasn't begun to mature in their faith and grow in their understanding of God, grow in their ability to put concepts together, to process data, to be able to chew on, on, on principles, and they've been a Christian a minute. Well, then there's something wrong with that. They're infants when they should be mature. And he says, he says, man, that's wrong. But he says, not only is it wrong, he says it's morally wrong. Now, before I jump into that too far, I want you to catch this. He says, by this time. Now, the Bible uses a couple different words for time. There are, there, <clears throat> there's a way of understanding time as an era or an epoch. You might have a translation that says, you know, uh, Lord, is this the time when you will bring in the kingdom of God the disciples asked him in Acts 1 is this the epoch is this the era have we're about to turn the page on history and hit the next level on this thing but that's not the word that's used here the word that's used here is the word chronos and it speaks of just marking off days on a calendar he said by this time you've been a Christian for X number of days, weeks, months, years. You've been a Christian for long enough to where you ought to know but you don't know. By this time you ought to be teachers. By the way you ought to be teachers. That first, first of all the you ought. It's the Greek word ophelo and it speaks of an obligation or to be indebted to or to owe something. And it invokes a moral responsibility, not just a good suggestion or an aspiration of our life. It says you are indebted to, you are obligated to, you are uh, expected to, you owe this 
to the one who saved you. It is a moral responsibility. Meaning, it's right to be a teacher and it's wrong to not be a teacher. It's right, it's moral to be a teacher. It's immoral to not be a teacher. Let that settle for a minute. You may be thinking, now look, I realize I don't teach anybody, but you just said I'm a sinner if I do that. Well, I actually, I didn't say it. The writer of Hebrews did when he used the word ophelo. But to your point, here's where I think he gets his, his understanding. I think he draws from James 4, verse 17, where he says, Therefore, to one who knows to do the right thing and does not do it, to him it's sin. It's sin. Wait a minute. <clears throat> this says this is what I'm supposed to do, and if I don't do it, that's sin. Yeah, it's a sin of omission. You say, well, it's not like, it's not like committing adultery. That's a sin of commission, right? Yep, yeah, you're exactly right. You grab the concept. Commission and omission are two different kinds, but they share a common word, sin. They're both morally wrong. Sins are a big deal. You and I were slaves to sin. It was a taskmaster in our lives. And then we were redeemed by God from sin and called to not continue in sin but to run from sin and to warn others about sin as well. It's, that's the cornerstone of Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Notice what he says. It's from the New Living Translation. He says, don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin or who worship idols or who commit adultery or who are male prostitutes, or who practice homosexuality, or are thieves, or greedy people, or drunkards, or are abusive, or cheat people. None of these will inherit the kingdom of God. And some of you were once like that. But you were cleansed. You were made holy. You were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. He said there was a day when you were in shackles, you were enslaved, you were a prisoner to sin. You lived like you wanted, you did what you wanted, you acted like you wanted on the basis of instincts, just like a dog running up and down the street. And then Jesus came into your life and Jesus pulled you out of that. Jesus cleansed you from that. Jesus paid the price for that. Jesus redeemed you to live a life other than that and he set you free. And he said, you ought, therefore, to be teachers. It's morally right and immoral not to be. You ought to be teachers. That word teachers is the word didaskalos. And there's really two senses in the way that the word teacher is used in the scriptures. One of those speaks of the unique calling of a teacher, the, the one who are called to be teacher. In fact, James tells us in James 3 and verse 1, don't be in a hurry to be called to be a teacher because we 
open ourselves up for stricter judgment. Let not many of you become didaskalos, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. Don't rush into the role of teacher, he says, because God holds you accountable for the influence that you possess. Well, if that's true, how can this be true? He's not talking about that. There's that idea of a calling to be a teacher. There's a gift of being a teacher. Same thing. Romans 12, verses 5 and following. It says, so we who are many, that's us, we who are many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Since we have gifts, we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy according to the proportion of his faith. If service, in his serving. Or he who teaches, in his teaching. Or he who exhorts, think preacher, in his exhortation. He who gives with liberality or generosity, overflowing. He who leads with diligence. He who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Each of these, and it's not exhaustive, but each of these are special giftings that are given to different parts of the body, different people in the body so that they could work together and the body would be whole and healthy, each one ministering to the other. That's a unique calling. It's a unique gifting. It's a special, it's a special something that God did in, in certain people's lives. But nothing in the context of Hebrew even suggests that. The writer of Hebrews is not writing to the pastors of the Hebrews. He's writing to the Hebrews. So whoever he's writing to, whatever it is he's saying, must be for all the people. Verse 12 again, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles or mysteries of God. And you've come to need milk and not solid food. The idea of a teacher here is a general responsibility to teach others about Jesus. It's something that applies to all of us. You say, well, wait a minute. How can not many of us want to be teachers and it applies to all of us, Chris? Two different kinds of things. There's one role for a calling and then there's another responsibility to help others know the Jesus that you know. Well, could you prove that anywhere? I'm so glad you asked. There's a lot of places I could draw from, but let me just draw from one that's real familiar to us here, found just before Jesus' ascension as he stood with the disciples prior to ascending back to the Father. He says in Matthew 28, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching, didaskaloi, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Hey, listen, Jesus didn't say that to the 12 disciples. There's 120 people on top of the mountain at that point. He says it to all the congregation, all the believers that were there. You make disciples, baptize them, and teach them to observe. You, <clears throat> you. You. Now, the writer of Hebrews says that your dullness of hearing has made you a sinner. And here's why. 
because you're sitting in line trying to learn, if you will, the ABCs of the gospel again, when really you ought by this time to be diagramming sentences, writing essays, and showing others how they can do that as well. You over here trying to figure out A is for apple, B is for boy, C is for cat or Clemson, D is for dog or dog, E and F. You're over here doing the alphabet. And you ought to be at this point so schooled in the alphabet and schooled in how the word, letters fit into words and words fit into sentences that you could sit and break that down and teach other people. You should be by this point grown up. But you're over here on, on the bottle. Hey, have you ever thought how a lack of obedience in this area, a lack of hearing, a dullness, might influence or impact the rest of the community? For instance, what if there's somebody sitting near you who needs to know something about Jesus, but they can't ask you because you don't know? What if there's someone around you who's living outside of God's perfect plan for them or God's got a special something for them? Or they're just trying to get answers and clarity about something and you can't help them because you don't know. Cause you're dull of hearing, lazy in the discipleship. How might that affect the community? Hey, maybe the community's too broad. Do you realize with me that there are boys and girls who are learning what they're going to know about Jesus from moms and dads. If as a mom and dad, you don't know how to help them understand Jesus, how he is, who he is, what he does, that you can trust him. If you can't teach them that, they're going to grow up without any reference point of that. It's why, it's why here we put our focus and emphasis not on saying bring your children to some smart dude and let him try to teach you these things, but rather let us equip you so you can be teachers of these things. Why? Because <clears throat> you can bring a child or a student or a college student or, or, or an adult or you could come yourself or you could bring your grandchildren and you could say to them, okay, I want you to learn stuff. Jesus loves me, this I know. And they go, Jesus loves me, this I know. They go, okay, that's all I need to know, right? No, hey, hey, what do you want them to do when they don't know what to do? Somebody's got to teach them what to do when they don't know what to do and who to find out how to do what they need to do with what they need to do it with. Somebody's got to sit there and go, listen, when we don't know what to do, here's what we do. We grab hands and we ask the Lord because the Bible says, ask and it'll be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened for everyone who asks receives. Everyone who seeks finds. Everyone to whom he knocks it shall be open to him. We trust God so we're going to ask God together. Yeah but it's not a matter of knowing facts Chris. I want to know what's the, what's the, which one should I do between good and best? You mean wisdom? James says if any of you lacks wisdom let him ask of God who gives to all generously and overflowing opulently. He, he pours it out effusively to him but let him ask without doubting. For a man who doubts is like the waves of the sea tossed to and from by the wind. Let him, let him ask, believe and say, God, if we're going to get through this, you got to tell me what to do. I'm waiting on you. I'm not going anywhere without you. Speak, Lord, your servant's ready. 
Where are they going to learn that? Oh, from their, from their connect group leader. But what about the other 167 hours in the week? You'll teach them more by, what, by how you talk about Duke Power Bills than that teacher will about how they talk about Genesis. That's why, we put our, that's why we put our eggs in the basket of equipping moms and dads. Do we have connect groups? Yes. On purpose. Because everybody ought to find a way to be able to invest in somebody. The idea here is, who are you discipling? If you're not discipling somebody, you are morally wrong and disciplined lazy. And that's not me, that's the writer of Hebrews. So listen, if we're missing out due to our laziness and our hearing, which leads to sinfully not discipling others, is there any hope for us? And the answer is clearly yes. So notice with me the remedy for maturity. The remedy for maturity. How, Chris, if this is true, how do we fix this? Like those disciples in Acts chapter 19 when Paul said to them, were you baptized in the Holy Spirit? And they said, who's that? And he told them and they said, man, baptize us. We want to do that. If you look at this and you go, I'm not doing what I ought. Is there hope? Yes. Here's the remedy. Look at verse 14. But solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Now, the Bible teaches us clearly that maturity is the goal of discipleship. Maturity is the goal of being a Christ. In fact, it's in Chris Aiken's job description found in Ephesians 4. For God gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to a maturity of the faith. In other words, till we look like Jesus, act like Jesus, talk like Jesus, work together like Jesus, and express Jesus to everybody. And he said, Chris, that's your job. Equip people to be able to do that. So it's in my job. Maturity is the goal. It's the outcome. You've not done it just because you said it. You've done it when people get it. Maturity is the goal. The goal is not a Bible degree, but a holy life. Maturity is not knowledge accumulation, but gospel transformation. Maturity is not that you can recite whole passages of Romans but to disciple others, helping them to hear and learn and pass on to others who will hear and learn and pass on to others who will hear and learn and pass on to others. The remedy is a trained spiritual sensibility through doing, through practice. That's what he said. Who have their senses trained because of practice so they can discern good and evil. I met a, and I have to be careful when I tell some of these stories, I have to think, now where was that again? I was at a church one time where a woman came up to me, I think I'd preached out of the gospel of Matthew, and she came up, chest stuck out, proud, pastor, I've been studying Matthew for nine years. I thought, man, I studied it a couple weeks to teach, you should be up here. I mean, if you spent nine years studying the gospel of Matthew, you probably know more than lots of dudes. 
well, I, I learned some stuff in what you were saying today. So let me help you with what study means. It means I've learned some facts about the book of Matthew. I've looked at it, but I've not let it look in me. I've read about it, but I've not let it read the words of my heart. I've not yielded myself to, hey, if someone slaps you on the left side, turn and give them the right also. And if a man takes your shirt, go ahead and take your jacket off and offer it to him as you wish him well and he walks away. If a man comes and compels you to walk one mile, you go ahead and walk an extra mile just for good measure. See, it's one thing to know that's in there. It's another thing to go, Lord, fix my little heart. She had knowledge accumulation, but not gospel transformation. You may be saying, Chris, I teach people. I just don't know how to disciple anyone. Well, I got that. Do you want the remedy or did you just want to brag about the fact that you don't know? You want the remedy? Here it is. Here's the remedy to discipling people, to not knowing how to disciple people. You ready? Start discipling. Well, I mean, don't I have to go get some classes first? Don't I have to, you know, get some pins to put on my shirt or something? Don't I have to, don't I have, to have a certificate or something? You can't take it with you. <laughs> They're not checking your credentials. They are not. Peter, if Peter's on gate duty when we get to heaven, he's not pulling your transcripts. You learn to disciple by discipling. You start helping others to see. It could be children in your own home. It could be a neighbor. It could be a friend. It could be somebody in a connect group. It's not a matter of sitting down and saying, okay, I'm the teacher. You're the student. Learn from me. It's not that. It's walking along and saying, man, what's up? What's God doing in your life? He's doing this. Well, that wasn't God. God didn't tell you to go out and divorce your wife. That's weird. God hates divorce. I know he didn't tell you that. It says right there in the book. You probably can't tell them that if you don't know that's in the book. You got to, hey, you start disciple. You sit there, they go, well, what does it say about this? You go, I don't know. How am I supposed to understand what's going on at Asbury? I look on the internet and I see a bunch of self-appointed experts. Some of them said God's visited. Some of them said that can't be God because some weirdo visited. I'm saying you're a weirdo. <clears throat> hey, look, listen to me. God can do what he blessed wants to do. He don't need your permission. It don't have to fit inside your little theology textbook. If God wants to drop up in here today, he could up in the service. We could go well past 12:15, and it wouldn't throw God a lick. Some of you would slip out the back door, but it wouldn't mess God up at all. You learn to disciple, to teach others in the didaskalos Hebrews is speaking of by passing on what you've heard and learned. Let me just say to you, I never would have learned to lead had somebody not told me to lead. I learned to lead while leading and somebody said, well, how'd that work for you? That was terrible. Well, don't do that no more. Try it this way. Oh, Okay. Not only did I learn the techniques of it, I learned the confidence in it. I learned all of that. You can't do that without practicing. That's true in the army. It's true in your household. It's true in the church. It's true in every aspect of life. Same way with discipling. 
Oddly, my fastest growth as a disciple and a disciple maker, the fastest growth in my, listen to me, this is good, the fastest I ever grew was not in my studies at Bible college, not in my years at seminary, not in undergraduate or graduate or postgraduate work. It was when Jody and I taught fourth grade Sunday school. You said, you're kidding. Man, you ain't seen some of them fourth graders. Some of them outsmart a fella. I knew I wasn't ready for no fifth graders. But the fourth graders had me. But now here's the thing. Man, I didn't want to get in front of them and not be able to show them faithful. Talk with them about what God said. So we, we did that. And then we moved down market, started teaching adults. And down again being a pastor. But anyway, <laughs> the fact of the matter is, I learned it while doing it. Imperfectly, but shaped and shepherded, guided and groomed by the Holy Spirit of God. Just like he wants to do with you. Some of you maybe are wondering, Chris, why, why do I feel stagnant in my faith? I just don't feel like I'm growing any. Could it be that you've grown dull of hearing, gotten lazy in being a disciple and a discipler? And if so, would you be comfortable staying there? Or would you sit there and say, God, I, I don't want that to be my story. I don't want to be dull of hearing. I don't want the consequences cascading to a community across my household and to people I know and love. I don't want to one day be standing, looking back on my life and go, I've missed out on the opportunity to make such a difference if I'd just been yielded. If I'd just taken my little fingers out of my little dull ears so I could hear and process and make myself available and be obedient to Pastor Jordan, you weren't in the first service, but I made a promise to him in the first service, and I don't know how to fix it. You're going to have to fix it. What I told him was, if you're sitting here today and you go, I've got to do something with that. I've got to, I've got to grow as a disciple and a disciple maker. I don't know where the position would be. I don't know what would open up. But we'll help you if you'll say yes. We'll help you. You say, well, I, I can't teach kindergartners. They scare me. Scare me too. That's why I'm in the room with you. And I didn't say kindergartners. What I said was, I don't know how. But I know this. If that's the way, foolish is the man who sits down and points at it and doesn't get up and walk through it. You ought to get up and go before your got up done went. Because God's not messing around. There's a danger in dullness. There's an immorality in remaining an infant. And there's a remedy in trusting Jesus. Why not today trust Him? Would you pray with me? Thank you for joining us today. We hope this message has been a blessing. If today's message has prompted you to consider a next step with God, we would love to assist you. 
simply drop by our website at inglewoodbaptist.com next or give us a call at 252-937-8254 and let us know how we can assist you. If today's message was an encouragement to you, let me encourage you to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you consume this content. That really helps us reach a wider audience with the life-changing hope of Jesus Christ. We hope you will join us next week. And until next time, may the Lord bless you.